Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Welcome back. Our guest today is Peter Gray. Peter Gray is an American psychology researcher and scholar. He's a research professor of psychology at Boston College and the author of an introductory psychology textbook. He's known for his work on the interaction between education and play and for his evolutionary perspective on psychology theory. He's the author of the best-selling book, Free to Learn, Why Unleashing the Instinct to Play Will Make Our Children Happier, More Self-Reliant, and Better Students for Life. That book is available in 18 languages around the world. Hello and welcome, Peter Gray. Thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. Um, so as you can see, we, we had a lot of questions and talking points, and they may all go out the window because once you start talking just from your experience, we are open to hear uh, what you have to say. And then we may have a few things we're really curious about that we can always at the end tag on. So if it's okay with you, uh, shall we jump right in? Sure. Great. So Wonderful. we always start with uh, asking a question. If you had to, uh, in one word, say what ADHD is, uh, what comes to mind? I suppose impulsivity. Got it. And uh, what do you think, just from your experience and with your wealth of knowledge around education and history, um, uh, evolutionary theory, right? What What is the cause or what could be the cause um, of ADHD? Yeah, uh, to me, the most plausible um, way to think about what gets labeled as ADHD is um, that all human beings vary in a number of personality dimensions. And there's good, from an evolutionary perspective, there's good reason why we vary in, um, in, uh, in personality and in dispositions. In, um, and one of the ways that we vary is the degree to which we are impulsive, um, which sounds like a negative word, right? <laughs> but I'm going to argue that it's not entirely negative. <laughs> the degree to which we're impulsive or the degree to which we're restrained uh, or controlled. Mm. And, um, you know, from we, we tend to be an individualist society, uh, people, and so we tend to think of uh, we tend to think of the individual person's actions and ways of being. But of course, we evolved as part of bands. And, um, and for the most part, throughout human history, actions were taken collectively by groups of people. And if you are a group of people trying to solve a problem or trying to do anything, it's good to have people who differ from one another. So natural selection produced <laughs> variation. Um, it's as if there's sort of a niche for some people to be more controlled, to be the kind of person, 
I, I'm maybe, some would argue, over-controlled, right? I'm a little restrained. I, I, you know, some emergency would happen and I'd sit down and think about it instead of jump in and solve the problem. Whereas another person is more impulsive, if you want to use that word, less constrained, they'll jump in and solve the problem. Well, it's good to have both of us there, right? <laughs> you know, And so the point is that over the course of natural selection, we evolved. Uh, natural selection produced differences. And, and these differences tend to be distributed in uh, what's called a normal distribution. So most people are somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and then as you go towards either end, there are fewer and fewer people, but there are some people at, who are out towards the end of each of those extremes. So um, natural selection, you know, didn't produce people who can't survive in the world largely. I mean, although accidents occur, genetic accidents occur and so on, but it produced a variation of people. And from, from an evolutionary perspective, and especially if you look at hunter-gatherer bands, which were the kind of environment in which we human beings evolved. But I think the same thing is true today. We want people who vary. Now, the problem is the reason ADHD came about and began to be talked about as a disorder <laughs> um, at the same time that school became uh, more and more an issue in children's development. As we went into the, you know, around 19, in the 1980s, particularly, we uh, in the United States, but in other places too, we began to. Um, get uh, obsessed with test scores, with uh, homework increased, recesses decreased in schools, children had much less opportunity to go out and play. Uh, we began to believe that getting into college is the end all and be all of childhood. And um, that meant getting good grades in school. I mean, the whole society became convinced of that. Well, schools became more and more places where if you've got a personality that is towards the impulsive end, <laughs> it doesn't work for you. <laughs> uh, it used to kind of be okay. I mean, it wasn't, those kids always got in trouble in some ways, but there was kind of an understanding. And, and there was, a, in some sense, more of a variety of things you could do in school. There were, you know, there were shops, woodworking shops and all kinds of things. And it wasn't like everybody is meant to be a scholar <laughs> and that there's something wrong with you if you're not meant to be a scholar. You know, so the, um, so, and, and kids had a lot more time to play and explore so that kids who tend to be, to tend to need more physical activity, which is also part of the ADH diagnostic system, had more opportunity for physical activity and maybe they're a little more ready to settle down and, and, and you weren't in the classroom that many hours. So no surprise. I mean, what happened is school became, the way I put it, school became an abnormal environment for children. Some children can adapt to it reasonably well. I don't think anybody adapts to it very well. I think it hurts everybody. But some children can adapt so that they're not a big problem in school. <laughs> and on average, this is a sex difference, on average, girls are a little better than boys 
on average of that. That doesn't mean that there aren't girls who are out there impulsive too. <laughs> yeah. right. But the but if you've got a norm, you've got a normal distribution. So here's the normal distribution for girls, and here's the normal distribution for boys, a little bit more out towards this end. So if you're kind of out on the tail of this distribution and the on the on the impulsive side, then you become a problem in schools as they are designed today. Schools don't seem to be capable of saying that the problem is them. <laughs> so what they decide is that the problem is the child. Uh, sometimes they decide it's the child's parents, <laughs> but other times they decide it's the problem of the child and the child has some kind of a disorder. So at the same time that schools became less and less flexible, more and more narrowly oriented on very boring worksheet kinds of work, things and seat work and very little break from that, um, all kinds of things became disorders that weren't called disorders before. And ADHD is the primary one, but that's not the only one. We began to talk about um, yeah, uh, about dyslexia. <laughs> All kinds of people are diagnosed as dyslexia. Not even though you know if you can't learn how to read at a certain age because you're not interested in it and you're not ready for it, you get a diagnosis of dyslexia likely today, <laughs> um, and yeah. so on. And 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 the other thing that happens, of course, it fosters all of this is parents want their children to do well in school because school is made to be so important. So it's not only the teachers and school people who want these diagnoses, but often the parents want the diagnosis because if the kid is diagnosed, they can bargain with the school system to get a special program, to get special accommodations. So there are people who will doctor shop until they can find a doctor who will give their child the diagnosis that they're looking for, <laughs> because that will allow them to get a special education program, allow them to have extra time to take tests and so on and so forth. So that's the absurd situation we're in where parents want their child to get a diagnosis of a mental illness. <laughs> Isn't this weird, the, the, the environment that we've got? Wow. That's amazing yeah it's almost like the what is it the cart the the horse before the cart no the cart before the horse yeah. right yeah go ahead then then peter incredible thank you for for the elaboration of it then would you say that the the label or the distinction adhd is directly a function of the structure educational structure that has been imposed yeah no, I, I mean we wouldn't have that label if, if we didn't have schools as we have them today, we would not have a label of ADHD. We didn't have it before. <laughs> we would know that some people are more impulsive than others. And we would recognize that probably if we were rational, that some people are cut out for certain kinds of work more than, uh, more than other kinds of work. I mean, uh, and, and, and one would recognize it, we're not all the same. We have different personalities. And part of growing up is discovering who you are, what your characteristics are, and where's the right place in the world for you, for a person who is like you. 
Now, it turns out there are a lot of people for whom school is not the right place for you, <laughs> school as we do it today, nor the kinds of careers like my career as a college professor and writer is probably not the right place for most people who have ADHD. My wife claims she's got ADHD. Well, she's a she's a physician and she claims her ADHD is good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it leads her to notice all kinds of things. And she was a she was an she was an OBGYN and in the operating room. It's good to be uh, to be alert to all kinds of things that can happen that you might not otherwise notice if you're too focused just on one thing. Um, my stepson, her son, is, was diagnosed as ADHD. He was terrible in school. He's uh, now a chef. That's another place that uh, the kind of characteristics that you have uh, are actually a benefit. Um, things are going on all the time. He's got to keep track of all kinds of different things. It, it's not a it's a somewhat misnomer to call it a lack of attention. It's it's an ability to notice things other than what you're just focusing on at the moment. It's a kind of an ability to split your attention um, is is at least part of this of this characteristic. That that's that's great, and and that leads me to ask you, um, you know, what why are parents so hell bent on? suspending their natural trust in their children that they will turn out like and and what can they do to to, to feel more at ease uh to say experiment with child-led education or unschooling or homeschooling right what what has that grip on them that just suspends that trust because it's natural i mean we're starting to feel it ourselves but it's hard to get into that trust yeah i, I think that i mean that's a great question and, and um I think what has happened, first of all, um, the change in the way school operates and also the change in our attitude about child raising and what this is all about has been gradual over time. It hasn't occurred all of a sudden. And um, so, so what has happened is school has become increasingly rigid over time but not as sudden step, but it's been a gradual change. We have now for generations, uh, several generations, I mean, almost everybody is at least third generation schooled. <laughs> so most of us, uh, even at my age, not only did our parents go to school, but our grandparents went to school, right? So we think of school as essential to growing up. and. And over time, we've begun to think increasingly, well, jobs now, it used to be, the belief is, and it's true, that you could get a good job without much schooling. <laughs> you could get a good union job, you'd be employed, you'd be, or you could, or you could find a way to so-called go out and make your fortune, <laughs> you know, without a lot of school, without a higher education, at least. Over time, the changes have occurred such that such that um, jobs are are believed to be harder to get. Now, whether they really are or not is another question, but they're believed to be harder to get. And the belief is that if you don't have a college education, you're going to be really out of the job market. So parents don't want their kids to be homeless. <laughs> their parents want their kids to end up having good jobs. 
And parents have come to believe because they're told this over and over and over again, that unless you go to college, you're not going to be able to get a good job. And so to get your kid into college becomes the goal of parenting. <laughs> and to the point where, as we've seen in, you know, a year or so ago, uh, you know, people will cheat and lie <laughs> to get their kid into college. <laughs> they, they will bribe the, you know, so people are desperate. <laughs> It's in, I, I know that this is a mistaken belief because I study people who don't go to school at all, as we usually think of it, and who go on to very good lives. And you know, those who want to go to college can still go, get into college, even if they've not, not done any, any schooling before, believe it or not. That's hard for most people to believe. But that, that knowledge is not out there in the general population. And so people want the best for their kids, and they believe that their kids have to do well in school. And so they hear that their kid is not doing well in school because they've got this, this thing called ADHD. As it's treated like it's a disease, as if you've got measles, you've got ADHD, like you would have measles or something. And it's talked about as a medical, almost like it's a medical condition, and it can be treated with a drug, right? And so... And so they say, well, why shouldn't I treat my child with this drug and give them these advantages? It turns out that the drug does help in terms of grades in school. <laughs> and so that's another reason parents are seeking the diagnosis so they can legally get the drug <laughs> and the kids will do better in school. The drug has all kinds of harmful side effects that, that it varies from child to child. But the idea that being able to do well in school is so important that um, you know, that it, it, I think I can understand it from the parents' perspective. What I, what I have more difficulty understanding is that people who should know better, <laughs> um, people, people at, who run universities, uh, educators, people who ought to have a broader perspective, but who are still feeding the parents the same the same arguments about having how important it is to go to college and how important it is to do well in school. And um, the idea that schools need to, we, you know, this whole, the, the other thing that began to happen is, is we had these international tests um, that compare nations in terms of how well the students are doing and the PISA tests, um, that then becomes further motivation through the government to be pushing test preparation, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and so this is all, you know, the, at this higher level, all these decisions are being made about what children must do. And then parents, you know, I, I'm, I, I have a lot of sympathy for the parents who are in this bind. Um, they see their child is suffering in some ways. And the, and the only thing that they hear about how they can relieve the suffering is give the child a drug <laughs> so the child will do better in school, as opposed to the idea, which sounds crazy to so many people, well, why not take your child out of school and do something very different that would work better for your child? That, that's, it takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, yeah. I think it's becoming easier gradually as more and more people are doing it. And as more and more people are doing it, taking their kid out for homeschooling or for some kind of alternative schooling, 
um, more and more people recognize that uh, other people are doing it and it's not so weird and it's and uh, and recognize that there are people doing it and it seems to be working out and so I think that there is a gradual change occurring right now more and more people are bucking the system and I think we'll at some point reach a tipping point where the number of people who have left the system is sufficient that essentially everybody knows somebody who's done that and can see that it's been successful for them. And then they begin to think, well, it's not such a weird thing to do. It's not such a scary thing to do. I could see yeah. someone go across the street and they've got two kids who seem to be very happy and they've got an older kid who's uh, successful and, as a, an adult and who didn't go to a, went to something very different from typical schooling. Um, I think that's the way social change occurs uh, by and large. If there's a few brave people who see a new way of doing things and that it works better for them, and then that encourages a few more people to do it, and uh, this this is gradual. But then at some point, you know, some people say it's when 10% of the population are doing it. Some people say it's when 15% of the population are doing it. You reach the tipping point where this is no longer viewed as an abnormal thing to do. None of us want to be abnormal. We all want to be normal. That's part of being a human being. <laughs> now, Peter, uh, maybe this is a good moment to talk about the current uh, uh, switch to this online uh, virtual learning, right? So through COVID, uh, parents have been or children have been forced to stay home and learn via screen. What do you see that's doing to children, to education, to families right now that's in that vein of, of, of it's a new frontier, but is it the right one? Yeah, so, so what is, it's interesting what has happened. Um, so shortly after the schools were closed, actually um, a month after, and then again, two months after, um, the Let Grow uh, nonprofit, which I'm, um, one of the founders of, um, conducted uh, surveys of families. So this would, schools largely closed early, um, between early March and mid-March uh, a year ago. And, um, and in April, and then again in May, we did large surveys, a large number of families with children between the age of eight and 13 to see how they were adapting to this, and it was demographically representative of the country, racially, economically, uh, and so on. And um, what we found was, contrary to what um, the popular press was reporting and is still reporting, what we found was that um, the kids were doing a heck of a lot better than most people believed they were. <laughs> mm. um, they were, um, so one of the questions we asked in this survey of the children themselves was, are you more calm or less calm now than you were uh, before schools closed? And uh, twice as many said more calm as said less calm. Uh, we asked a similar question to the parents about their children. Is your, children, are your, is your child more or less stressed now? And the majority said less stressed. <laughs> So here that they, you know, you pick up a newspaper or magazine and you read about how uh, terrible this is for the psychiatric health of uh, the mental health of children. And our study showed that it seemed to result in improvement in mental health of children. There's 
been two other studies that I'm aware of, one in the UK and another one in the United States with very similar results. In both of the, both the researchers in both of those studies said they were surprised. They had expected that mental health would decline as a result of being confined to home, all these outside of school activities being closed and so on, but mental health had improved. To me, it's no surprise. Uh, there are reasons, and clearly there are stressors that, are, that have been produced. I don't want to say that, the, that this, the pandemic has been a good thing. It's been a terrible thing, and for many families, it's been a very disastrous thing. And I don't want to say that all children were doing better, but on average, they were doing better <laughs> psychologically than before. Is, is that, uh, do you think that's due again, you know, half of them that didn't want to be at school now at least they're home so they're doing better but part of that uh group uh is not used to sitting down and staring at a screen which is even more limiting than looking at a teacher at least who's maybe walking around right well i think what we heard from them is i can do school i can do all of my school work in three hours and i'm free the rest of the day <laughs> Yeah, so a little bit of a relief. Right. <laughs> so it's a, bit, a little bit of a relief. And um, so one of the questions we, so the, uh, one of the questions we asked was, are you looking forward to getting back to school? Now, despite the fact that they said they were less stressed at home, despite the fact that they said they were getting more sleep, despite the fact that they, in some of the questions, talked about the value of they were really getting to know their parents and their parents were getting to know them and they valued that in ways that they didn't know one another before because they hadn't spent that much time together. They were having dinners together. They were playing games together. They valued that very much. Despite all those things they valued, 70% of them said they were looking forward to going back to school. But then we asked an open-ended question, what is it that you miss at school? No surprise. <laughs> over 80% of the responses were friends and friends and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, re maybe recess. But. The next great thing was something like um, art or, you know, if you take a combination of art, music, physical education and gym, it was something like 10% missed that. It was something like 3% missed a teacher or teachers in general, <laughs> you know, so it was, they are not missing school. They are missing the fact that even though they don't have a lot of opportunity to interact with their friends at school, we live in a world where that is the only place where many children get to at least see their other kids and they get in between the cracks of what's going on in school they get a little bit of interaction and play and and friends are so important to kids and of course they were being deprived of actual physical contact with friends during that period and and they missed that and that undoubtedly was adding to some mental distress but that whatever that added was more than compensated for by not going in terms of in terms of their overall happiness was 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 more than compensated by the uh, fact that they didn't have the stress of schoolwork to the degree. Now, your question about uh, about online schooling, I think this has had an, an interesting effect. Um, one thing that we know 
at least if the Gallup poll is correct, that there was a huge spike in actual homeschooling. Um, so the, um, the Gallup poll did a study in August of uh, 2019, so this was a year before the pandemic, um, in which they found that 5% of American families were homeschooling their children. 5% of American families who had children of school age were homeschooling their children. They did the same study uh, a year later, um, the, uh, after the COVID um, uh, had begun, the COVID pandemic had begun, and they found in that study that 10% were homeschooling their children, a doubling of the number of people who've chosen homeschooling. That they were very clear in, in this survey not to count yourself as a homeschooler if you were doing public schooling at home virtually, but you're a homeschooler if you withdrawn your child from the public, from the school system and not enroll them in another private school system. So this was a huge jump. Now I'm sure that many of them chose homeschooling thinking that they were going to do it temporarily because they didn't like the online system of schooling. It was not convenient, it was not at convenient times. And they and when schools began to reopen, partly reopen, they didn't want to risk their child being sent into the into uh, possibly catching COVID, possibly bringing it home, and so on. So I think some of them did it with the idea that it would be temporary. But I've heard from many families that we started off thinking it would be temporary, but we like it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And the child is doing well, and we're likely to stay with it. And I've heard from some homeschooling organizations that it looks like there's that many of these people are going to stay with it. The other thing that began to happen is because parents were supposed to kind of supervise their children's learning when they were online, especially for the younger children, the parents began to see what the curriculum is, and they began to say, why is that so important? <laughs> you know, why should we be fretting about this? And why is it more important that my child be reading what the school is telling them to read instead of these other things that my child would rather read? <laughs> why I don't see the advantage. They began to actually question the school system in ways that they hadn't. And so uh, by kind of bringing the school curriculum into the living room, into the family's living room, <laughs> the family could kind of examine it and say, well, we could do better than that. <laughs> you know, we don't really yep. need, and we could do it in a way that's more oriented towards our own kid. Of course, schools can't do that. They've got to, they've got to develop a curriculum. I mean, one of the problems that you know they have, the teachers have my sympathy in this regard, is that they have to try to develop a curriculum that, in theory, would work for everybody. Of course, that's impossible. <laughs> you know, exactly. but you, but even if you're not an unschooler, even if you're a homeschooler, you you can't help but know who your child is. And if you're kind of working with your child to work out a curriculum, you could work it out in a way that's of interest to your child and of interest to you as the as the parent. And um, and it works better. <laughs> so. That's great. A lot of parents were discovering that. Um, so that's so that's a lot on the education side, right? I just want to throw out something that I believe you wrote about in one of your articles, where prior to 1973 in the in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, uh, homosexuality was considered a disorder or disease, even right. Uh, right. And so what I've been what we've been thinking about is, uh, you know, there was a minority that at some point. Um, 
r rose up or or said that's right. not true that's not we're not disordered we're normal right and so right. i'm wondering what would it take for or, or the adhd community to say hey we're not disordered please change that language in the dsm or the the flip side to that is or or our parents and children you know, so used to having this label and sort of being in victim mode of poor me, I got to take medication, I'm doomed for life, such that they would not step up. I'm just curious, like what, I know that's a, a, a sort of a detour, but what would it take for us to change the DSM so it's no longer a disorder for this, it's not a minority, but all these people? Um, so, I, I mean, I think, I, I guess you have to realize that there are a lot of different reasons why, um, DSM exists, why there are, why things get labeled as disorders. And, um, and a lot of it has to do with um, how uh, medical insurance works in our country, right? So if you've got, um, so there's always pressure to have things being called a disorder so you can get it treated, right? So, um, so, so if uh, if you're if I'm depressed, if I feel sad and something something has happened, I've got I've been divorced or I'm going through a grief process, and I go and I and I'm I'm in this state where I really need some help talking to this, so I go to a psychotherapist for help. If the psychotherapist gives me a diagnosis of major depression, the insurance company will pay for it. <laughs> Otherwise, I've got to pay for it out of my pocket. So now, now let's take the example of a parent whose kid uh, is not doing well in school. And the parent comes to the understanding that there's a drug that would help that kid do better in school. That parent is very happy that there's an ADHD diagnosis. And maybe the kid is too. <laughs> that now there's an excuse for why you're not doing well in school. You've got this characteristic. It's not your fault. It's not the parents' fault. This is just I happen to have been born with this characteristic. And that means that I get special treatment. That special treatment might be more time to take the test. It might also mean that I get a prescription to this drug which, as I've said, is a little bit like taking steroids if you're an athlete, right? It boosts you. It does. You do better in school. So whenever I write an article, when I wrote those blog posts about the problems with the diagnosis, the reason that, you know, who are the people who are most angry with me? The people who have ADHD. <laughs> Yep. They say this is a real thing. <laughs> now, not all of them by any means, but there is a core number of them. And there are also organizations of ADHD people, not surprisingly, that get financial backing from the drug companies <laughs> that uh, are proselytizing for the importance. They, they claim that it's underdiagnosed, that we, you know, that, uh, so there's a lot of, you know, th these are all very complicated. The decisions don't come just from science. The decisions come from all kinds of pressures, um, pressures from clinicians who want to be able to get reimbursed from insurance companies, uh, pressures from, 
you know, parents who want to have some reason to understand, it's, it sounds a lot better to say my child has ADHD than to say my child is stupid, <laughs> right? Or to say right. that my, uh, you know, so you also now have, as you probably know, there are also kind of these ADHD support groups in which they don't deny that ADHD exists. They are arguing it's actually an advantage or a lot of things that we, abilities that we have, and this is probably a good thing. It's building self-esteem and so on and so forth. But instead of denying that ADHD exists, it's almost reaffirming its existence. Yep. <laughs> and it's saying, like, we're a special group of people <laughs> who have these special abilities. Um, I went to one of those websites, by the way, and there's a little test to see if you have ADHD. And I came out as having ADHD. Now, I know I don't have ADHD. I'm the opposite of an ADHD person. I think that's set up so that everybody who takes the test concludes they have ADHD and you're one of these special groups. So, yeah. it's, <laughs> you know, it's, Well, that's interesting what you said. Um, let me ask you then, uh, because I'm fascinated with this as well. How come it's the people with ADHD that are uh, feeling attacked when we say, you know, it's made up, which obviously you and I can prove it's a made up label. It's a word. Um, how, why do you think they're so threatened by that? Because, because they believe that, that having that label is helping them. And the truth of the matter is, in many cases, it is. <laughs> if they're in school, it's helping them. <laughs> it's helping them in a variety of ways. Now, there are some people, at least they believe it is. Now, whether or not in the long run it is, is another question. We don't really know. Even today, even though there are people who've been treated with uh, stimulant drugs for a long time, there is... There are mixed findings, mixed theoretical beliefs about what the long-term effects of the drug. We know that the drug has immediate side effects that are terrible for some people. And for those, those people often figure out a way to do without the drugs, and they're more likely not to want to have the label or to agree that the label is meaningless. They're more likely to be a but there's a lot of people out there on these stimulant drugs who believe that this is saving them, that the drug is saving them. And because their grades are better, there's no question but what the drug improves their grades in school. What the drug helps you do is it helps you do boring stuff. <laughs> it helps you focus on stuff that you aren't interested in. And part of the problem with, part of if we call it a problem, part of the characteristic of people with the label ADHD is that they can focus on things that interest them. They don't have any problem doing that, but they can't focus or, or it's very hard for them to focus on things that don't interest them. Their, their attention gets drawn to other things or to their own thoughts and so on. So that, that's uh, school requires. I mean, the primary the primary ability that allows you to succeed in school is the ability to do boring, boring work that is not interesting to you, and to stick to it. Uh, and so, this is also why you know. I mean, I, I don't know to what extent it's still occurring because I haven't looked at the recent data, but it wasn't long ago that um, you know, kids without ADHD, especially in college, are using these drugs illicitly 
during exam period <laughs> to yes. prepare for exams or to write their papers. And it helps. <laughs> yeah. That's, you know, so, uh, the, the, these kids with, let's say, the so-called ADHD, are they potentially telling us our current society that, guys, this doesn't work for us. We should go back to the more natural way of learning. Like they're not, they're not, let's right. call it giving in They, they of into. The rebels with a vision, right? Rebels right. with a with yeah, message. That's, that's right. Now, are they not giving in? Are they aware that they're not giving in? Are they deliberately, are they rebelling? Or is it because of their personality? There are some kids who are rebelling. Now, my son was an example of that. He does not have ADHD, but he was simply rebelling in school because he recognized that it was, that he called it prison, when even in kindergarten, he called it that. And all the wow. way through until he finally convinced us in the school system that he didn't belong there. But that so that's real rebelling. Um, but I think most of most of the kids who get diagnosed with ADHD aren't rebelling in that sense. They're not consciously telling us that this is wrong, that we should be gathering the information that this is wrong when a significant number when something like at one point, I know that 20 percent of boys were getting this diagnosis at some point in their in there, you hear different estimates, but one of the estimates was based on, on data that seemed pretty reliable is 20% of boys at some point were getting that diagnosis during their school years. That should tell us something. That should tell us, you know, I've sometimes said, um, and maybe this isn't fair, but what if what if we found that 20% of girls were being given some uh, label of uh, being abnormal because they weren't doing well in school, wouldn't the feminist feminists rebel and say, oh my Lord, what is this? Are you really saying that 20% of girls are mentally disordered? Doesn't this mean that there's something wrong with school? <laughs> wow. And shouldn't we be reacting this way about boys? <laughs> you know? Uh, we are now in a world where boys are really at a disadvantage in school. They're now because, and I think it's because they're more impulsive. There are fewer boys graduating from high school. There are fewer boys going on to college than girls. Uh, but we don't have the same kind of, quote, masculinist <laughs> right. perspective that, oh. um, that would allow us to say that. So we just say, so we 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 continue to say that these boys are disordered rather than say that this should be a sign that there's that there's something wrong with our school system well maybe you and i could start it that isn't. movement the real thing that's wrong isn't that it's discriminating you know by sex the real thing that's wrong is it has narrowed the criterion of of it's trying to put you know everybody through the same square hole it turns out by chance, it turns out that girls are a little more likely to be able to get through that square hole than boys are. <laughs> now, let me ask you, is it uh, in an evolutionary sense, like as a, I call it a genetic hand-me-down, is it possible that because more men or boys were, uh, were hunting back then, right? They were, they needed their uh, their ability to be impulsive, to survive, to go out and get meat, to come back, to do it again the next day and really have their uh, 
alert system be constantly on? Is it possible that we that that's been passed down, and that's why boys still have that need to know multiple things going on and to multitask and to be alert because there's still that feeling of threat. I think that's right. The way that evolutionary psychologists would talk about this, we know in all in in various kinds of ways. And this is true for all mammals, not just, or almost all mammals, not just humans. The male is a bigger risk taker than the female, on average. This is why males get killed more often. <laughs> you know, they have shorter lives. <laughs> they're, it's even today why men are less likely to wear masks when they're out. They think they're taking a risk, and they don't think about the fact they're putting everybody else at risk. But, <laughs> but they're so they're uh, so. But but generally speaking, and so and from an evolutionary perspective, the reason that the male is the bigger risk taker and the female the less risk taker is is because females bear children and females typically throughout history among most mammals including human beings are more take more responsibility for caring for children than the males do so when a female dies it's not just her that dies but it's her infant born or unborn who also dies so it makes more sense that the male take the risk, it makes more evolutionary sense in terms of survival of the genes. So yet we can, to simplify this, imagine a married couple <laughs> and the woman is pregnant and has an infant. And so now, you know, there's a, there's a, some, some monstrous thing is attacking the family. Who should go out and to, and fight that monstrous thing, him, right? Exactly, because you've only lost him. I'm a tool. But but if you go, you've lost that unborn baby as well, and you've made it really hard for that infant who's maybe still nursing. And historically, infants nursed until three or four years old among hunter gatherers. You've lost that. So, so the argument is that this tendency to be the one who responds to emergencies, and that's part of what impulsiveness is, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, is uh, would be more male-centered than female-centered. Yeah, that makes sense, yeah. And now a question, a follow-up question to that is, this is a theory we're exploring, is that uh, nowadays, we don't have necessarily the bears and the dragons coming at us, but right. there's a lot of what I call traumatic events in a child's life, right? Like a divorce or physical abuse, mental, whatever, lots of abuse and, and, and not just trauma, but stress that's coming at our children, at the, the mothers. Could it be that that has replaced the bear and the dragon and that that's why a lot of these boys are also struggling at school because they're pro they're trying to process what's going on in the household. And then there's boring algebra. So, you know, hard to pay attention. Uh, is there something there that you could talk to? Have you heard anything about trauma and stress? It's a little that hard to relate that. I mean, certainly, certainly, um, certainly trauma and stress is an important issue. Um, I don't know of any evidence that it's affecting males more than females. Um, and in sure. fact, 
I think what most clinical psychologists would say based on their patients is that females are more likely than males as adults to be suffering from remembrances of trauma from earlier on um, than, than males are. Whether that's a difference in who admits it and who remembers it or whether it's a sex difference in some other way, um, sex difference in how people are treated or how they're remembered is, is hard right. to know. But I do think there's another, another um, change which occurs, which I think um, helps may very well help explain the rise in ADHD um, and perhaps can also help explain why it's uh, more often boys than girls. And that is that we have uh, over time, over these same decades that we've seen the invention of ADHD and the rise in its, um, in its diagnosis, we have been restricting uh, free play and especially rambunctious play, especially uh, risky play, the kind of play that boys traditionally have done more of than girls. Uh, so um, there was, there's actually a, a neuroscientist, Yak Pansa, who died a few years ago, who was studying um, ADHD in rat models, and he would create rat models of ADHD by uh, cutting the, some of the connections in the forebrains of young rats, and then they would develop ADHD-like symptoms. They would be impulsive, they would have difficulty controlling themselves and holding on, delaying for a delay task, and so on and so forth. He did this study where he, allowed, he, he prepared these ADHD-like rats, and then he allowed some of them to engage in what is normal play for rats, which is rough and tumble play. Rats play fight, both males and females. They do a lot of play fighting. And, um, and, uh, and other, in another group, he didn't allow that kind of play to occur. He allowed other social experiences to occur, but not rough and tumble play. The result was that those rats that were allowed the rough and tumble play overcame their ADHD-like symptoms. They grew out of it. <laughs> Those that were not allowed the rough and tumble play did not grow out of it. Subsequently, other people actually looked at the brains after such play and found that those connections actually grew back. So he developed the theory that play, especially vigorous play, and that's the kind of play that one might argue that boys need more of than girls. They traditionally have engaged in more of it than girls. Um, that that is part of the brain growth that allows you to develop the kind of executive control to control your impulses and so on and so forth. And without that rough and tumble play, you are less likely to uh, you're less likely to grow up with those with those connections. And maybe in humans, I mean, this is speculation. Maybe it's even more important in boys than in girls for growth of those part that those parts of the brain. So that so that that's one idea. And then there's another idea that comes. This is the idea that I've more often written about. I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to what Panksepp has suggested, but I think another idea is this. One of the things we know about play 
that is that play is how children learn to control their impulses. We think of play as, you know, kind of spontaneous and free, but it's, but, and, and it is freely chosen. And in that sense is spontaneous and free, but it's never free form. It always has rules. It always has structure. So no matter what a child is playing, there are rules to what they're playing. So imagine even a play fight, which might seem like the wildest kind of play, a couple of boys chasing one another around, you know, wrestling, swinging sticks at one another and all of this. Well, that the thing that, dif that differentiates a play fight from a real fight is the play fight has rules, no actual hurting of the other person. <laughs> if you're the bigger and stronger of the two, you have to self-handicap. If you push somebody down, you have to push them down on something soft, no kicking, no biting, no scratching, no, no hitting hard. You know, there's a whole set of rules. They don't necessarily, they're not necessarily stated, but even that kind of play which looks wild is actually an exercise in restraint. It's how can we go through all of this wild behavior while restraining ourselves in a way that we don't actually hurt one another. So, but all kinds of play, no matter what you're doing, there's structure to it. So the argument is, and this is an argument that I've long been part of trying to promote, get people to understand, is that play is how children learn to follow rules. It's how children learn to abide by social norms. It's how they learn. So if, it, and it may be that some people need more of that kind of play to develop the ability to control their impulses than others do. And if we're depriving people of that because we're overprotecting them, we're not allowing them, it turns out that even the mere presence of an adult, let alone, a, let alone an adult who's telling kids what to do, the mere presence of adults tends to inhibit that kind of play. So back in the days when kids went, when I was a kid, we played almost all the time with no adults around. Now there almost always are adults around and that kind of play gets inhibited uh, and sometimes explicitly prevented because the adults believe that it's fighting or it's harmful or it's or, or it's bullying, or it's this or that, or it's dangerous, somebody's going to get hurt. And so, and so I, I think it's quite plausible that our restrictions on play is in fact causing some increase in, in, um, in, uh, in impulsiveness because we're not allowing children to go through their normal ways of learning how to deal with their impulsiveness. Now, this might be a good moment to ask you because like many parents that, that are going to be curious to hear from you about video games, right? And not just video games as play, but also video games as social interaction with their uh, peers, their friends online. They can talk to each other. They play in teams, right? Uh, right. So besides the, besides the physical uh, benefits of exercise or running around or being out in the sun, is it possible that that video game play is actually made out to be more of a villain than it is? Could it actually still contribute to kids feeling like they're playing? There, there's limits, there's rules, and they're they're interacting with their friends, right? This will be a surprise to many people, but the the research evidence is that play, that video play, video games, serve 
many of the same functions as other kinds of play. Uh, in fact, you know, it used to be if you if you kind of Google, you know, harmful effects of video games, you come up with a whole list of things. If you try to actually find the evidence for that list, <laughs> you you don't find it. I've tried. <laughs> you don't find and in so among other things, there are people who've argued that the the advent of video games is one of the reasons for the increase in ADHD. In fact, there are now people recommending video games as a treatment for ADHD. <laughs> I mean, there's, first of all, there's no logical reason why video games would promote ADHD. I mean, it requires tremendous attention. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and, and it helps you learn how to focus. It helps you learn how to pay attention. And it, it teaches you how to be persistent, how to, you know, there are rewards in persistence, there are rewards in continuing to try and so on. So in fact, there is research evidence that video games um, are, are uh, in, valuable as treatment for ADHD. Um, the uh, the same is true for some of the other things that kids have been dis diagnosed with. It turns out that there's some research that shows that video games work as well for treatment of dyslexia as do the programs that have been deliberately developed to teach children with dyslexia how to read. <laughs> and so the, the video at every turn, video games also there's no question but what video play promotes intelligence of the kind that's tested on IQ tests. The first observation was that kids who play a lot of video games have higher IQs on average than those who play fewer. Now that's a correlation. It could just be that kids who have high IQs are more interested in video games than other kids. But they've done studies where you take kids who don't play video games. Largely, this is done with college women because it's hard to find boys and men who don't play video games in this day and age. So you take some who you take people who don't play video games as part of the study. If you're in the experimental group, you have to play this some vid certain video game for a certain number of hours a week for maybe six weeks. And the control group does something else, and you test them on some cognitive test of the type that's on IQ tests before and after, and lo and behold, those who play the video games are now doing significantly better on various kinds of tests. The tests of ability to hold a lot of information in your mind at once, tests of ability to focus on what's important and ignore what's not important, tests of ability to switch from one strategy to another if one strategy isn't working, tests of spatial perception, all of these kinds of things have been shown to improve with video games. <laughs> the other thing, and this is even more surprising to, pe to many people, is that there, the, I'll, I'll quote one study, which is in my mind, perhaps the most convincing study. This was a study done by, among other institutions, Columbia University School of Mental Health, collaborating with some other uh, institutions abroad. So this was a study, a multinational study of uh, something like, like 6,000 children between the age of six and 11. And they, by asking the parents, they quantified how many hours a week each child was playing video games. And then by asking the teachers and by looking at grades in school and other things, they, they assessed 
the social competence of the child as rated by the teacher, uh, the number of friends the child had as rated both by the teacher and the parents, um, the uh, emotional maturity of the child, uh, and, the, and how intelligent the child is, kind of based on these. Every single one of these, those kids who were playing five hours or more of video play scored higher than those who were playing less than five hours. They didn't subdivide it further than that, but, and it was significant in every, in every one of those. So the way I look at it is that in terms of the social development, if you're not playing video games today, and you're a kid, you're kind of out of it socially, right? I mean, this is what kids are doing. This is what they're talking about. This is the kid's world. And so you're kind of out of it. And I think that's why you would have fewer friends. I mean, if you're not playing video games, it's why you would be less socially comfortable. There's a lot of the game. Many of the games are social, of course, these days. They're, you're playing online with other kids. You're talking about these games with your actual friends, even when you're not playing them physically together. <laughs> yep. Your um, and and the, and many of the same kinds of skills are involved, and many of the same emotional learning is evolved, involved. Um, is is it uh, fair to say that perhaps where this whole addiction or out of control video gaming comes from is more like if the if the family life or if the the, the harmony the balance in the household is off and the child uses it to escape that right it's almost that then it becomes an escape versus a a true uh, engagement an inspired engagement to to play and have fun is that potentially the other side the flip side to it is that I think, there, I think there are some i think there are some cases for which that's true so for example now some people have looked at the relationship so one of the questions that researchers have asked is are kids who play video games more depressed or less depressed than kids who don't play video games. Now, the overall research is that they're less depressed. <laughs> kids who play video games are less depressed, but you can find a certain number of kids who are depressed and who are playing video games. And the video games are not helping them get out of their depression. Hmm. You can also find the same for adults, by the way. And in fact, most of the studies are with adults. There are depressed adults who play a lot of video games. There are also depressed adults who are on social media a lot. And so the result is people begin to think, well, the depression must be caused by the video game or caused by being on social media. But the studies, the more clinically oriented studies, have generally concluded the reverse. Mm -hmm. The reason they're on playing video games so much or on social media so much is that's the only way they can interact with other people. <laughs> they're not, if you're really depressed, you're not getting out of the house. Even before COVID, you weren't getting out of the house. You're not, you don't feel up to other things, but the video game is something that you can enter into and you can do it's not solving your problem because the problem lies elsewhere. It's, it's taking your mind off the problem. You might try to, you might, if you didn't have the video game, you might be doing something else to take your mind off the problem. So that occurs, but I don't think that's the primary reason why video games are so popular. I think there's two reasons why they're popular. One is they're really fascinating. <laughs> they are really, they, there's no end to how difficult they are. 
any game becomes boring when it becomes too easy. But video games can never become too easy because you can go to higher and higher levels and more and more complex games. As they become social, they become more interesting. They're socially connected. So there, nobody's ever developed games that are more fascinating <laughs> than video games are and more variable than video games are. I mean, you know, think of chess as like just one game. <laughs> But the video thing, there's no limit, and it's actually far more creative than chess. You know, so you know, very few people complain about their kids playing chess. But video, and they, and if you're not complaining about that, you ought to not complain about your kids playing video games. So that, so that's, um, so so that's part of it. They are, they are. Uh, so when people say they're addictive, it's because yeah, yeah, you know, you like to do them. <laughs> And then the other reason and is that for many children, this is the only way they're allowed to play. Even though there's a stigma about playing them, <laughs> it's the only way they're allowed to play. Mm -hmm. They're not allowed out of the house. It's the only way they're allowed to play away from adults. The only way they're allowed to engage in true play. Children need to play with other children without adults looking over their shoulder and telling them what they're doing and inhibiting them. And the only way that children, that many children can do that today is online. Mm -hmm. so, the, uh, so if you tell children you can't go out to the park and play with your friend, then you'll play with your friend online. <laughs> right. There was, there was a study some years ago, I quote it in my, I, I give the actual data in my book, Free to Learn, so, and that was written um, uh, about eight years ago, so, or nine years ago, so the study is probably 10 years old, but it was a study done online, so all the kids who responded to this survey had computers, they were responding on computers, and the question in this, to these kids was, Right now, if you had a choice between going out and playing with your friends in the park or playing your favorite video game, which would you choose? And over 80% said they would choose to play in the park, but that's not possible. <laughs> so this is the bind we've put children in. We don't allow them to go out and play in the park with their friends as we used to. So they do, they play with their friends in the only way they are allowed. <laughs> and then we try to stop them from that. Wow. Wow. You had a question, right? Well, Peter, my mind is blowing up here. I'm still processing everything you're saying. Um, because my, my, my burning question, and I feel you've tapped into it, but I love to get additional input. So as an unschooling mother, right, we're unschooling our son and um, who we, be we believe in child-led play-based education. He has the freedom to go out and play whenever he wants and chooses to, yet he loves his video games. And if it was up to him, he would be there more than eight hours a day. Um, if it was up to him, he would stay there for as long as he could. And and we many times have allowed him. He has, he's built such strong connections with friends there. Right. Yeah. Uh, yet if it was up to him, he would be there for a very long time. So as, 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 as allowing child led, as, as we follow child led education, is that 
okay to do. <laughs> right, like a Sudbury kind of model where go ahead, play video games all day, right? Are right. they are they so convinced uh, that that's completely fine and that it will turn out as a great adult? Uh, is it an experiment still or are there enough studies that Sudbury says like, oh no, we, we know even video games, like you said, are play and don't worry, let, let, they'll grow out of it. Yeah, it's hard to say that there are studies. I, I wish there were, but there are certainly um, there are certainly reports. I mean, where video games have been around long enough that there are kids who've grown up playing video games. There was at one point. I don't know if it's still true. At one point, the um, the homepage of the Sudbury Valley School uh, there was a little video by a guy, a young adult, um, who who said. Uh, for, uh, I forget how many years he said, I did nothing but video games at Sudbury Valley, nothing but video games. Uh, and then he talks about how he went on and he, what he's doing now and how the things he learned in video games have helped him in life and so on and so forth. So uh, there are these kinds of uh, case reports. I don't actually know of anybody who um, was in the situation of just playing video games all the time and uh, and then went on to be a life failure. But but maybe there are such people, I don't know, you know? <laughs> maybe they're not the ones who come up and talk about themselves. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so I really don't know. What I can say at Sudbury Valley, and I think that this reinforces to some degree the point I was just making, is although there are some kids who spend the great majority of their time playing video games, that's not, all the kids, and that's not even most of the kids. <laughs> the, the, the difference between what happens at Sudbury Valley is there's, a, there's this wonderful outdoor area. There, there's a forest nearby, there are rocks to climb, and there are always kids outdoors. There are always kids outdoors. So you go outdoors and there will be kids to play with. When I was a kid in the 1950s, no matter where you lived, you could go outdoors and there's kids to play with. Kids aren't, we, we, we fool ourselves if we believe that kids are just interested in the outdoors. They're not particularly interested in the outdoors. Some kids are. But I think that's, a, I think that's an acquired taste. <laughs> what kids are interested in innately is other kids. <laughs> they want other kids to play with. And they want friends to play with. If their friends are outdoors playing, that greatly increases the chance that they will go outdoors playing. So I, and that makes sense. Yeah. we live in a world where, and I hear this from parents all the time. I want my kid to go outdoors and play. I want to be the old fashioned mom who says, get out of the house, <laughs> come back when the light, when the street lights are yep. on. You know? Dinner's ready. Uh, yep. <laughs> I want to be that kind of mom, but I send my kid out and and, you know, within five minutes, he wants to come back in or he's on his device outside. <laughs> and it should not be any surprise to us if that's the case, if there's not other kids to play with. Yeah. And I also think that siblings aren't enough, generally speaking. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are, but there's but siblings are a little different case than friends <laughs> who are not your siblings. Yeah. And so I, we unfortunately live in, I think the real challenge for anybody, whether you're homeschooling, unschooling, whether you have kids in school, the real challenge is to find places and opportunities where children 
are playing, will, can, can regularly play, and it'll be the same group of mm-hmm. kids playing where you really make friends and you're playing with friends over time. That's the natural environment for a child to develop in. And that environment has pretty much been destroyed in our modern society. And the only way it's preserved is online. I've written one of my blog posts is on the culture of childhood. The culture of childhood used to be a big topic for sociologists to study. You would go into a community and you'd find there's two cultures there. There's the adult culture and there's the child's culture. And the child's culture is separate from the adult culture. It, it bears relationship to the adult culture. But children are growing up in a child's culture where they're spending huge amounts of time with other children away from adults. This is sort of normal. This is what happens in the hunter-gatherer band. This is what happens in traditional societies. And this is what happened in America in the 1950s when I was a kid, too. It's what happens pretty much everywhere where kids were slaves or in, in, in child labor, is kids were spending huge amounts of time with other children. And there's a whole culture that develops about how you interact with one another, the meta rules of play, that you're learning cultural mores in the context of this culture of childhood. We have now destroyed that with one exception, and that is the online culture of video games. <laughs> that now is the culture of childhood. And if a child can't do that, they're being deprived of the culture of childhood. <laughs> in today's world. Wow, that's amazing. Amazing, Um, I know, uh, obviously, you want to watch our time. If if you have another 15 minutes, uh, do you have another 15 minutes? Yeah, perfect. So just uh, a couple of things that you mentioned in in, uh, some of your blog posts uh, was the uh, executive functions, how it relates to inhibition and impulsivity. And then there's the Y chromosome and then dopamine. If there's a way, if you want to string them together or something about um, uh, your experience or your, your knowledge around, uh, especially that Y chromosome that, that we talk about, one of the biological characteristics that predisposes for ADHD in the school environment is that chromosome, right? Well, really, we already talked about that. That's, that was simply a, a way of saying that being a male is mm, predisposed. Mm, got it, got it. Uh, I'm, not so, argue, I'm not arguing that we found an ADHD gene on the Y chromosome. That I'm just arguing that one, the one thing we know, whatever it is about inheriting that Y chromosome that leads to your development to be more risked oriented and less risk averse, uh, more impulsive. That's the big part of it. Uh, So the- um, Got it, yep. Yeah, perhaps- Dopamine is simply that. So uh, one thing we we know is that these stimulant drugs promote the secretion of dopamine. Uh, They act in the same way that all kinds of abuse drugs do in that sense. and they um, and and we don't and we don't really know what the long-term consequences of that are. Um, there there is no particular reason to think that dopamine as a neurotransmitter is somehow part of the. Well, I guess I guess some people would argue this. So here's what we know that we know that those those four brain connections that I mentioned before that from the forebrain to the more limbic areas of the brain that 
we know that those connections are important in controlling impulses. This is also where executive function, executive control is part of executive function. Executive control really is a term for being able to control your impulses, being able to stop and think about what you're doing rather than to jump in and do it. Uh, and so, and, and so we know that some of those neurons use dopamine as the neurotransmitter. And so part of the rationale for why these stimulant drugs work is that they activate those, that set of neurons that in, in use dopamine. One of the concerns is that one of the things we know about many drugs is that the brain adapts to the drug <laughs> in such a way that the brain becomes dependent on the drug. <laughs> and then you have sort of withdrawal symptoms. Now, there's no obvious immediate withdrawal symptoms from going off of these st stimulant drugs that are used to treat ADHD. But there are some people who argue that, the, that because the dopamine is being stimulated artificially in this way, the growth of the natural mechanisms that would produce the dopamine is being shut off and inhibited. And the result of that is you're prolonging basically, I mean, I should back up and say all children are more impulsive than adults are. <laughs> and part of, part of maturity, part of development is growing those connections that lead you to control your impulses and also learning to control your impulses. Well, maybe the drugs are preventing the growth of, the, of that so that you never grow out of it. We're seeing more and more adults who are ADHD. Now, at least some of those adults are people who are diagnosed early on and they've been, ta been taking the drug since childhood. Would they have grown out of it if they were not taking the drug is an interesting question. We need more studies of, of that. Mm. That's wow. that's amazing. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, I know uh, you have to go and I just want to express our, our gratitude for you taking the time to share with us your experience and the wisdom. And I know it'll make a big difference for a lot of parents listening to this. And uh, hopefully we'll be, you know, we may do a follow up down the road, but we just really appreciate your time and having been able to meet you. Peter, incredible. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We'll keep Thank you posted, you. yeah? And nice, nice be, to meet yep. you. be well. And Peter, oh. if there is, as a closing, one thing that you could leave parents with, as in what to do for their children, with their children, <laughs> one thing. Listen to them. <laughs> Listen to them. Trust them. Beautiful. Let them play. <laughs> right? Great. Thank you, Peter. Be well. Bye-bye. All right. Take care. Thank you, Peter. Bye.